else. If you've spent much time at all in the church, these are, of course, rhetorical questions. It's easy to misunderstand. It is easy to be misunderstood. We're nearing the completion of Joshua this morning. I think, though I make no promises, uh, we've got two more sermons after this one, and we will have completed our journey together through this great book. We're in chapter 22 this morning, and there's a big misunderstanding. And there's a lot that I think that we can gain from looking at this misunderstanding. We're going to cover the majority of the chapter, but I've decided not to have you stand and and read through it all in one fell swoop. I'm going to take it chunk by chunk as as we go, but we still ought to pray before we get started, so let's do that. But Father, thank you once again for your word. What a gift of your grace it is to us. And thank you that you haven't just left us with your word, but you have left us also with the Holy Spirit who is himself our means of understanding the word that that he inspired, that he carried along the authors as they penned these words, your very words, So, Holy Spirit, come and help us now, we do pray. Help us to understand rightly what you intend to communicate, what you are speaking to us through these words. We need your help. We need you to change us and transform us. And so we're we're praying for just that, and we're expecting that as we offer this prayer in the name of Christ our Savior. Amen. So the misunderstanding we have here in this chapter is between the tribes that live in the west and the tribes that live across the Jordan River in the east. Got a map up there. It's too small to make out all the details of it, but I think that you can see the two little bodies of water and the black line, which is the Jordan River, separating the tribes on the left from the tribes that are on the right. Nine and a half tribes settled in the land of Canaan proper, that is, in the west. Two and a half tribes liked the better pasture land east of the Jordan River and said, hey, this is the land that we would like. And so that's the land that they were allotted. Over in the east, they're not technically in the promised land proper. It's more like the promised land annex, if you will. We first saw back in chapter 1 of Joshua the concern that came from their being separated by the Jordan River. The concern that was addressed in chapter 1, Joshua addresses these eastern tribes and says, Hey now, you're not going to leave us high and dry just because you're over here across the river. You're going you're to still fight with us, right? You're still going to help us kick out the people from the promised land that need kicking out. And so they got back then the word of those eastern tribes, yes, we will fight with you until the end. And amazingly enough, we've seen along the way their faithfulness to that promise, They've remained true to their word. They have fought with the western tribes. And so now the first nine verses, which we're not going to look at 
specifically in chapter 22. I'll give you the brief summary. Joshua calls those eastern tribes together and they say, and he says to them, well done. You, you have done what you said you would do. You fought with us, right, to the bitter end. And now your work here is done. Now it's time for you to, to go across the river to the land of your possession. And so that brings us then to the passage that uh, we've printed in the worship folder this morning. So let's first look at verses 10 through 12. And when they came to the region of the Jordan that is in the land of Canaan, the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh, so that's the two and a half tribes that are going to settle east of the river, they built there an altar by the Jordan, an altar of imposing size. And the people of Israel heard it, And said, Behold, the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh have built the altar at the frontier of the land of Canaan in the region about the Jordan on the side that belongs to the people of Israel. And when the people of Israel heard of it, the whole assembly of the people of Israel gathered at Shiloh to make war against them. War? What's going on? What's the big deal about building an altar? Now this is interesting, and we need to make sure that we understand what's going on. First thing about the size of this thing, an altar of imposing size. This is the same word that's used to describe the burning bush that Moses encounters in Exodus 3. It it arrests, it grabs your attention. You see it and you go, whoa, what is this? This thing was huge. And notice where it was built, because this is going to come in useful later. The eastern tribes built it, but on the western side of the river. They didn't build it over in their territory. They built it across the river, large enough so that it could be seen across the river. But is this really worth going to war over? Let's keep reading verses 13 through 16. Then the people of Israel sent to the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh in the land of Gilead. So that's kind of the, the name of that eastern territory. They sent Phinehas the son of Eleazar the priest, and with him ten chiefs, one from each of the tribal families of Israel, every one of them the head of a family among the clans of Israel. And they came to the people of Reuben, the people of Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh in the land of Gilead, and, and they said to them, Thus says the whole congregation of the Lord, What is this breach of faith that you have committed against the God of Israel in turning away this day from following the Lord by building yourselves an altar this day in rebellion against the Lord? So this brings us to the first of two points that I'd like to make about misunderstandings. You've got them listed there in the worship folder. So here's the first point. Misunderstandings are always a possibility. Where sinful, error-prone humans are involved, misunderstandings are always a possibility. And so we've got to take this into account. When we get our feathers ruffled, we need to have somewhere on our radar... 
hmm, I wonder if this is just a misunderstanding. Instead of running headlong into action that will likely soon be regretted. So for the western tribes who in verse 12 were ready for war, very fortunately in verse 13 they said, let's send a delegation. So verse 13 says that Phineas and a delegation was sent to the people. Hey, you know what? Let's inquire. Let's double check that what we think we see, what we think we understand is actually what we think it is maybe before we launch into war. So that's the first thing that we need to understand about misunderstandings is that they are always a possibility. The second thing is, point number two, resolving a misunderstanding requires dialogue. All right? So when our feathers are ruffled, when something happens that angers us or concerns us or puzzles us, there are a variety of options of how we respond. The first option is, well, we'll just keep it to ourselves. We'll stew over it. We'll guess as to the meaning of what we've seen. We'll infer. We'll read into it. This is always very helpful, right? Always wildly successful at resolving the misunderstanding. We come to conclusions like, well, they just must be up to no good, whatever this thing is that's happened. You know what? I bet they did that just to tick me off. They did it because they, ra- they weren't raised right. Right? Or worse yet, in the church, uh, I bet they did that because they just don't love Jesus. Right? The, when we read into it, when we stew over it, and we're just guessing, we're just trying to make inferences, these are the types of things that we come up with. That's the first option. The second option is even worse because it's basically the same type of guessing, but we're not doing it alone. We're grabbing our buddies. Can you believe what they did? They must have done that, and then you fill in the blank together instead of by yourself. Equally helpful. The third option is the only helpful one. Rather than guessing, rather than reading into it either by yourself or others, here's a novel idea. Let's go to the person involved. Let's go ask them to this person or to this group that's done the confusing thing or the puzzling thing or the alarming thing. Let's go talk to them. Hey, here's here's what I hear you saying. Here's what I think I see that you've done. Am I misunderstanding this? Is what I think you're saying what you actually mean? I wonder if I understand the reason why you did something. 
church, if, if we don't learn to do this, if we don't learn to go and engage the person rather than stewing about it internally or with others, if we don't learn to do this, we will never have healthy, biblical, God-honoring relationships and we'll never have a healthy church. So we've got to go to the person. We've got to be humble enough to say, I might be misunderstanding this. In essence, that's what the Western tribes have done here in chapter 22. They've seen something that's very concerning, very alarming, so much so that they're ready to go to war over it. But they want to confirm first before they launch the attack. And so that's what verse 16 is. What is this breach of faith that you have done? Now, it's helpful if we ask the uh, what's the big deal question again, right? Because really, what is the big deal about building an altar? Well, we need a little context to understand why these western tribes are so upset. And our context comes from Deuteronomy 12. Uh, Verses 1 through 7, we've got it up on the screen. These are the statutes and rules that you shall be careful to do in the land that the Lord, the God of your fathers, has given you to possess all the days that you live on the earth. You shall surely destroy all the places where the nations whom you shall dispossess served their gods, on the high mountains and on the hills and under every green tree. You shall tear down their altars and dash in pieces their pillars and burn their asherim with fire. You shall chop down the carved images of their gods and destroy their name out of that place. You shall not worship the Lord your God in that way, but you shall seek the place that the Lord your God will choose out of all your tribes to put his name and make his habitation there. There you shall go, and there you shall bring your burnt offerings and your sacrifices, your tithes and the contribution that you present, your vow offerings, your freewill offerings, and the firstborn of your herd and of your flock, and there You shall eat before the Lord your God, and you shall rejoice, you and your households, in all that you undertake, in which the Lord your God has blessed you. This is why it's a really big deal. We've seen all throughout Joshua, it's a really big deal that the inhabitants of the promised land be dispossessed, which has often been a euphemism for killed or at the very least, driven out. Because God does not want his people to pick up their practices, and he certainly doesn't want his people to pick up their gods and to worship their gods. Because you see, the Canaanites worshipped a whole bunch of gods in a whole bunch of different places, but not so with Yahweh. He's one God, 
And he'll have one place of worship, and the place of worship is of his own choosing. And we saw last week that that place, the place where the tabernacle is to be set up, is to be Shiloh. This is where you shall worship. This is where you shall sacrifice. On the altar that's inside the tabernacle. And so for the western tribes to see these eastern tribes go over to their land, and the very first thing they do is to build another altar, it's alarming. And so this leads to the third point that I want to make about misunderstandings. Sometimes they're worth risking. There always a possi- it's always a possibility that I'm going to misunderstand you, that you're going to mis- misunderstand me. But see, sometimes we're not going to say anything for fear of misunderstanding, for fear of being wrong, for fear of having egg on our face, for fear of you saying, oh no, you, you've misunderstood. And I need to tell you that sometimes, many times, it's worth risking a little egg on your face. It's worth risking being wrong. There's some history here with Israel that makes the Western tribes risking a misunderstanding very much worth it. It's very much a good thing that the Western tribes get involved here. Look at verses 17 through 20 to see some of this context, some of this history. They've asked in verse 16, what is this breach of faith that you have done? And they elaborate in 17 through 20. Have we not had enough of the sin at Peor from which even yet we have not cleansed ourselves and for which there came a plague upon the congregation of the Lord that you too must turn away this day from following the Lord? And if you too rebel against the Lord today, then tomorrow he will be angry with the whole congregation of Israel. But now if the land of your possession is unclean, pass over into the Lord's land where the Lord's tabernacle stands and take for yourselves a possession among us. Only do not rebel against the Lord or make us as rebels by building for yourselves an altar other than the altar of the Lord our God. Did not Achan, the son of Zerah, break faith in the matter of the devoted things? And wrath fell upon all the congregation of Israel. And he did not perish alone for his iniquity. See, this is why it's worth risking a misunderstanding when the health or perhaps the very life of the people of God is at stake. Let me reverse that and repeat it because it's important. When the health or perhaps even the very life of the people of God, the congregation, the church is at stake, it's worth risking a misunderstanding. This is actually a bright spot here for God's people because it seems they might actually be learning from some of their mistakes. The Western tribes think that the Eastern tribes are breaking faith with God and they bring up two examples of how very badly this went in the past. The first one mentioned in verse 17 is the sin at Peor. Now, we're not going to turn there. I don't have time to elaborate on this. Numbers 25 
is the sin at Peor, the, the Baal worship. And what they actually are doing in the Baal worship is unbelievable. And God's response is breathtaking. You ought to go look at it. It's an example, again, of all of God's people suffering for the actions of a few of God's people. The second example here we see in verse 20, that's the sin of Achan, right? We've looked at that, right, where he kept some of the devoted things. And all of Israel experienced God's judgment and wrath when they had their rear ends kicked at Ai. And then... Achan's family dies with him. And so it's because of these two examples that the Western tribes are saying, now you wait just a cotton-picking minute here. Don't think that you're going to go off and desert the Lord and break faith with Him. Because we know it's not just you who will be affected. We'll be affected too. Sometimes we have to risk a misunderstanding. If sin is potentially involved, if that's what you think you're seeing or hearing, and you were right, but you don't address it, then it's not just that person who's at risk. You're at risk The whole church is at risk. The whole church can be harmed because you weren't humble enough to swallow your pride and risk being wrong for the sake of your brother, for the sake of your sister, for the sake of the church. Now, in saying this, it's also necessary that we turn the tables Friends, when you are approached by your brother or your sister, when they come to you with a concern, when they say, here's what I think I'm seeing, here's what I fear I might be hearing, what's your response? What's your response When you are approached, who do you think you are? How dare that you would accuse me of such a Friends, maybe the person approaching you has misunderstood. Or maybe they've caught you in sin or on your way to sin. It doesn't matter because both of those things are a grace of the Lord. Both of those things are God's grace and His kindness. Will we receive it as such? Now let's look at the eastern tribes' response when they are approached. Do they receive it as God's grace? Verses 21 through 23. 
Then the people of Reuben, the people of Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh said in answer to the heads of the families of Israel, The mighty one, God the Lord, the mighty one, God the Lord, he knows. And let Israel itself know, if it was in rebellion or in breach of faith against the Lord, do not spare us today for building an altar to turn away from following the Lord. Or if we did so to offer burnt offerings or grain offerings or peace offerings on it, may the Lord himself take vengeance. So basically their response is, hey, there's been a misunderstanding. Not, how dare you? But a heartfelt explanation of what it was that they were doing. And an appeal to the Lord himself, in essence, if they're lying, that he come down hard on them for it. They say, with God as their witness, basically, to the Western tribes, hey, this is not as you have presumed. That's not, what, that's not why we built this altar, all right? So if it's not what you think, which is what they're saying, basically, it's not what you think, right? Well, then what is it? And here's where we need to finish out our text, verses 24 through 30. No, but we did it from fear, that in time to come, your children might say to our children, what have you to do with the Lord, the God of Israel? For the Lord has made the Jordan a boundary between us and you, you people of Reuben and people of Gad. You have no portion in the Lord. So your children might make our children cease to worship the Lord. Therefore we said, Let us now build an altar, not for burnt offerings, not for sacrifice, but to be a witness between us and you and between our generations after us that we do perform the service of the Lord in his presence with our burnt offerings and sacrifices and peace offerings. So your children will not say to our children in time to come, you have no portion in the Lord. And we thought if this should be said to us or to our descendants in time to come, we should say, behold, the copy of the altar of the Lord, which our fathers made, not for burnt offerings, not for sacrifice, but to be a witness between us and you. Far be it from us that we should rebel against the Lord and turn away this day from following the Lord by building an altar for burnt offering, grain offering, or sacrifice, other than the altar of the Lord our God that stands before his tabernacle. When Phinehas the priest and the chiefs of the congregation, the heads of the families of Israel who were with him, heard the words that the people of Reuben and Gad and Manasseh spoke, it was good in their eyes. So now this makes a little more sense on a couple of levels. They weren't trying to make a new place to worship, and that explains a little bit. Remember, it's built on the western side of the river anyway, which would been pretty inconvenient if they were trying to come up with a new place to worship um, don't have to cross the river to use it but basically they were afraid that later generations would come behind them and they wouldn't recognize these eastern tribes as a legitimate part of the people of god they would say oh they're over there they're in the annex right they're in the annex they're not they're not legit They at least wanted their kids and grandkids to know and to be able to say, hey, you see that altar on the other side of the river? 
Well, guess what? There's another one over in the land. And that's where we worship the Lord our God. That, that people that lives over there on the other side of the river, we're part of them. And you need to always remember it. Don't you ever forget it. And so this leads us to the fourth thing about trying to understand misunderstandings. The fourth point is that misunderstandings arise when we focus on different things. See, the Western, or actually the Eastern tribes, did what they did in building the altar because of what they were focused on. The Western tribes responded to the building of the altar in the way that they did because of what they were focused on. The Western tribes had Deuteronomy 12 in the forefront of their minds. They're super concerned about the purity of worship, that it be done by the book. And the Eastern tribes did what they did because they're focused on on the peace of the community of God's people. It's actually helpful if we think about this. There's a continuum that we are all on somewhere, one side or the other, between focusing on purity and focusing on peace. And this is something that Sean took the officers through a, a while back. Some of us are just hardwired to be more focused on purity, right belief, doctrine, right practice, eye dotting and T crossing, right? Others of us are focused, we're more bent toward the other end, toward peace, toward unity, toward relationships. The love that we are to have one for another. And everybody leans one direction or the other. Now, which one is right? To which end do we belong? Where are we supposed to be? Ah, some of you are thinking, oh, we need to be in the middle. We need to be 50% pure and we need to be 50% loving. We, We can't come up with a good answer because it's really the wrong question to be asking. Because we've got to have both. And we don't just need to be 50% loving or 50% pure in our doctrine. We need both. One isn't any good without the other. right? If we are only concerned about right doctrine but have no love for our brothers and our sisters. I think Paul addresses that in 1 Corinthians pretty strongly. Or if we're just so loosey-goosey about what we believe... Uh, but we sure do love each other. That gets addressed as well. We need to be at both ends of that continuum, and we cannot be, and so that shows us at least two very important things. Number one is that we need each other. We have got to have each other. I need people who lean toward the opposite end of the continuum than I do. That's our only hope. 
is if we would have a church that's filled with people on each end of that continuum and that we rely on each other, that we recognize, hey, I remember that, that Stan sure is a peace-loving guy. Or I sure remember that Bill loves orthodox doctrine, right? And so if we keep that, we need each other. But if we keep that in mind, too, that we're different, that's going to help along the way with our misunderstandings right there. So the fact that we lean toward one end or the other shows us that we need each other, and it really, really shows us that we need Jesus. Who, of course, was the only one who's ever successfully been at both ends of that continuum. Who's ever been perfectly about purity and perfectly about peace. Right? Just read the Gospels. Look at his interactions with people. The perfect embodiment of both every time. Never once does he sacrifice the truth of Scripture or the truth of God's Word or His law. Never once does he sacrifice relationship in the process. He's the perfect embodiment of, of both And it's not just that he's got this magical tension between purity and peace. It's that through his purity, he makes peace. That's that's the deal changer. Through his righteousness, he makes for us peace. Through his righteous life, through his sacrificial death, he makes peace between us and God. And see, it wasn't just a misunderstanding that we had with God. We had actually, in reality, offended his holiness in myriad ways. And because of that, we justly deserve his displeasure and wrath. But Jesus was pleased to leave all that he had, to take on flesh, to live a life in which he was terribly misunderstood. that he might become for us our purity and our peace. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we thank you that in your wisdom and your love you sent the Son, your only Son. We thank you for his purity. We thank you for the peace that He secured for us on His cross. Father, would You allow that knowledge to be our bedrock upon which we are able to iron out our misunderstandings, to approach one another in humility and grace,
that we'd be willing to be wrong, hoping that we're wrong, if it might mean the welfare of our brother or our sister or the church. By the working of Your grace, make it so, we pray. In Christ's name and for His sake. Amen. If you'll stand now and prepare to sing and respond.